I'd like to introduce you to Open Space, one of the oldest artist-run centers in the world, situated on unceded Lekwungen territory. Since its founding in 1972, Open Space has grown into a living cultural space where artworks, music plays, media moves, and words incite. Open Space works with artists to create and present contemporary work across all arts disciplines. You can find them at 510 Fort Street in the heart of downtown Victoria, or visit them online at openspace.ca. Uh, it's great to see him. It's jealous. It's tall. It's good. 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 La nong is gulout, la at leonox gulout, i huchis in the quamlox salikas, i mok the salikas, um, kailak auch at the sketch east, um, St. Chathlin squales, um, i chisalasin at husaikam, i the ala lungs at the na shwalakwasta, i thalaxin the na snack when told the na seatlatla, i sequemptin the na main, i Ki su kyukit, who suketh kukni nasan mietki, who kaklek nukuaklam. Good day, uh, respected ones. My name is John Elliott. I work for Santa uh, School Board as a teacher and for University of Victoria as well. So uh, my name is Jacqueline Jim, but uh, recently in September, I went through a naming ceremony. Um, and so I said, my name is Sequaquilwit, and it's the name that I share with my late grandmother. And I also share that name with uh, my cousin, um, whose mom also, her late mother also shared that name with her. Good day. I'm happy to be here. My name is Nupku Aklam, also known as Troy Sebastian, and formerly known as, and still currently, I guess, here at CFUV, DJ Skookum. You're listening to Full Circle on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. We acknowledge with respect that we are broadcasting from the Husanich and Songhees territories of the Sanchathan and Lekwungen-speaking peoples. With this acknowledgement, we want to incite action, promote respect for Indigenous worldviews, and encourage a dialogue around decolonization and building community. What you just heard were some of the guests on this episode introducing themselves in their languages. On this episode, we're looking at the ways language can be used as a tool for decolonization, for Indigenous futurisms, and for reclaiming culture, land, and identity. Okay, yeah, sure. I work with um, I, my main job in the last forty years has been with uh, language preservation and uh, survival of the Sanchathan language, and mm-hmm. so I work with um, the Sanchathan School Board, formerly the Sanchathan Indian School Board, mm-hmm. and um, um, we've had quite a long-term agreement working with the University of Victoria, and. Um, I first started working with um, elders way back, and uh, there was 18 fluent first language speakers uh, mm. that were put together and gathered up by my late brother-in-law, Philip Paul, who was the chairman of the school board back then. And um, he asked for myself to do 
the recordings, uh, cassette recordings of all of the work that they were going to be doing and learn as much as I can from them mm-hmm. about St. Chawton language and our history and our culture from from then, our land history and things like that. So that's what I've been doing and it led into me teaching. So I said that I am from Khusetnich and I teach at Llewelnok Tribal School. I'm a Sinchothan immersion teacher. Our language is called Sinchothan. So uh, first and foremost, I'm a Sinchothan language learner. I've been learning uh, the Sinchothan language my entire life from the time I was three or four um, at Llewelnok Tribal School as a student. And then um, I'm now come full circle and now I'm a teacher there and I teach... Um, part-time in our immersion preschool and then I teach Sanchothan as a subject uh, from kindergarten to grade five. But I also said that I'm from Husaikum, which is the place of clay, uh, one of four communities in Husaitnich. And I come from the Jim family. I said that my father was Sequempton and that my grandmother was also Sequakulwit from Husaikum. I started off by introducing myself in my Tunaka name because it's an important thing for me to do, to be able to speak that. Uh, our language is critically endangered. Um, it's a language isolate, Tunaka language, which means it's unlike any other language in the world. And with less than 30 fluent speakers left, uh, you know, it's, it's absolutely vital and critical. And the language itself is obviously, uh, and perhaps not obvious to a lot of people, but it's tied to the land. It's tied to an actual place. And the power of that place is, in a lot of ways, lost or obscured when you call it by a colonial name. Place names are absolutely vital. And when we are, you know, challenging Canadians and the world to uh, relinquish these colonial representations of place, uh, we're doing that not simply as, as a request, but as an offering um, to that place and, and, and serving uh, the spirit of what that responsibility means in a legal, political, moral, and spiritual sense. And that's what being Tanaka means. And you can't feel that as a Canadian. And when we say that a place called Gutmuk exists and that there is a uh, sacred connection that we as Tunaka have to that place, it is understood through the expression of the word Gatmuk, as well as through the expression of the of the term Khaukla, which is the grizzly bear, and the grizzly bear spirit coming from that place. And when you're in that place, um, it's a powerful experience. I think that language is, is key in understanding how are people related to the land and nature and in regard to all the different parts of nature, whether it's the sea life or the the plants and trees that grow, or maybe it's a place, mm-hmm. it might be a mountain place or a hill that's named in in some name that um, that has a meaning to it. And um, um, so we have uh, species names for salmon. All of the salmon they have a, each have a species name and. Um, they also have a relative name, so we use those relative names when we're actually speaking to the the salmon, whichever salmon that we're speaking to, mm-hmm. when we're going to interact with it, whether we ask it to to feed us or we thank it for um, feeding us, or we're going to take that same salmon and use it in a ceremonial use, we'll use that name again. Mm-hmm. Or if we're praying about it when we're at the table, then we use it again, and so it's a uh, it's um quite a bit closer than just talking about it as it's a fish. Mm-hmm. It's not just a fish, it's mm-hmm. more than a fish. So 
and it relates back to the time when Creator made the salmon from a good, hard-working people. Actually, the word shtjenoch means uh, salmon or fish, but um, it comes from from shtje, which is uh, work. And the shtjenoch is the working people, because Creator found a good, hard-working people that worked well together and wanted to use them as an example of how life should be for us as a people. And so he changed them, and they didn't have any enemies, and they worked hard together, well together. So he used them as an example of uh, a good way for our people to live, be hard-working, good-working people with no enemies. And um, and so he sent them, changed them into the salmon, sent them out to sea as a family. And so they go out to sea as a family, and they return back from the sea and to the rivers where they came from as a family. And so I think just in that understanding alone is a, is a good understanding of, and a different way of looking at um, uh, the word fish. It's a necessity to do that, to speak t- truth to power, and also to be able to testify in terms of our lived experiences, which are so often not simply just misrepresented, but erased in media and culture. And place names are a fundamental aspect of that erasure. And they happen on a consistent basis in terms of you know the everyday things which are named in terms of the colonial landscape, but also in terms of the names of uh, ourselves. That's the part that we struggle with is, uh, you know, without any kind of consultation, these these places were changed and renamed and, and uh, as if we weren't here. Mm-hmm. Our people still are here. And we're going to be here for a long time to come. And uh, I think those old uh, uh, origin stories uh, and such things as that and village place stories uh, have a place in Canada's history. I really believe they do. Tunaka Amakis, um, Tunaka Territory, is uh, where I come from. And the headwaters of the Columbia River come from Columbia Lake. The community around there is called Akiskanuk. Um and this is uh, this is where the Columbia River begins, and so the the actual specific reference of British Columbia refers to that waterway, right? And we we know water is sacred. That's something that's a mantra that's been expressed so many times. The sovereignty of water, indigenous connections and responsibilities to water. You know, this is at the heart of, of our territory. And if you look at it on a map, look at Columbia Lake. Where is Columbia Lake? And look up a map of Tanaka Territory. And it's basically in the heart of it. And so not just in a geographical sense, but in a political sense, the idea that British Columbia exists unquestioned is at the heart of, of, of everything, of all of our challenges. And why is it called Columbia? I think it was because of the, the first boat that that was in the Pacific from by Siepes by by white people I think in this case American an American ship from Boston which quote unquote found the Columbia River was named the uh, the Colum- the Columbia the ship and so that's where the name freaking comes from and so you know it's just like this random sort of bizarre I mean can you imagine every single tourist ship that comes through here change the name of Victoria every time it comes by. You know, where do you live? I live in the Norwegian spirit, you know, like anyhow. So that's the, the, the history and background of, of British Columbia is a is a colonial imposition. It is the original fake news. It is the original um, misdirection uh, of, of memory. And we need to realize that that memory is violent and wrong and incorrect. And when Tunaka people or Shuepan people or other people who have connection to these places express that uh, the place names, um, 
it's important to keep those words alive. And, and, and that's where our um, obligation comes from as Tanaka people. The way we look at a mountain, a mountain place or a stream mm-hmm. or a river, um, that we, we need to take care of it for, for the future. And um, sometimes the uh, colonial names that were placed on these places in, in place of our ancient names, uh, they don't have a great meaning. And sometimes for our people, it was, it was the, uh, the people that were suppressing, oppressing our people whose names are putting on these, on these beautiful places. And uh, mm-hmm. for us, as a first uh, people of this land, um, um, it, it just uh, makes us feel like a homeless people without a, without a center. And, uh, you know, our old names were right from the creation days and the time these things mm-hmm. were made. And it's much more meaningful for us. And in a lot of it, it has the, the understanding that we should have care for these places built right into um, from the time that it was made. Whoever controls uh, the uh, you know present controls the past. Whoever controls the past controls the future. And so our past is controlled by this colonial landscape where we call places, oh, this is Victoria, British Columbia, and it's on Vancouver Island. It's in British Columbia, Canada. You know, oh, that's nice. You know, no, it's not nice. It's brutal. It's awful. It's violent. I know that um, most people know uh, uh, as Pakals rather than Mount Douglas now around in this area because there was some action taken there on that mountain to bring the name up there. And I I believe we have the intention to do the same thing for Sleutungok, which is Mm -hmm. uh, what's called Mount Newton. Out in Sandwich, they called Mount Newton. Mm-hmm. We don't know who Newton was. <laughs> I think he was a relative uh, or a, a doctor friend of one of the leaders back when. Mm-hmm. And he, so they named it uh, Mount Newton mm-hmm. uh, to our people. It means place of healing, place of refuge, uh, place of escape. Mm-hmm. And it's a sacred place because our people tied to that mountain uh, 10 or 11,000 years ago. Uh, when the great flood uh, flooded the earth and were able to survive there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why it's called Tlewang, a place of escape, place of refuge. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where our people named themselves the Khusetnich, the people of the emerging land. And our school is called Tlewang, but our school is named after a mountain that is right next door to our school, and it's the mountain in Khusetnich called Tlewang. And Tlewang is... Um, named as such and the translation is the place of healing and refuge so um, that mountain is attached to our flood story about um, the time that the flood came and uh, the flood waters rose and the people who survived the flood and were in our canoes um, found Tlewilnoch and tied themselves to a tree at the top of Tlewilnoch and waited for the waters to recede um, when they when the waters receded, the people stayed at the top of the mountain and prayed and called, they named this place Tlewilnoch, the place of healing and refuge. Um, and they named the people, Hussetnich, um, the emerging people. So we are those people who have emerged from the flood and survived the flood. So we are Hussetnich and Tlewilnoch is our mountain. And at the time that our school was built, it seemed the most fitting to call our school Tlewilnoch, the place of healing and refuge for our students. Um, Based on the history of residential schooling and um, the relationship to schooling and education, 
and um, regaining control of education for our people in our community. So um, I definitely don't go that deep with the kids, but definitely to know that there is a relationship to this mountain, to this place. Um, I use the word sacred and I try to explain that sacred is something that is special to us. It's important. And why is this place important? Well, um, you know, it took me a while to get there myself because I had to learn the Irish and Chatham language as an adult myself. My parents both spoke in our home to one another and to our aunts and uncles that came around uh, to visit. I could hear them speaking in language and they spoke to one another in a language. But um, my late mother, Beatrice Elliott, uh, was a survivor of the boarding school system. And um, Mm -hmm. um, back in her day, uh, schooling days, uh, at the boarding school at Cooper Island, they were punished for speaking their language and told that our language was a heathen language and and, uh, they shouldn't be learning it because it was connecting us to our belief system, which they thought was heathen because it wasn't Catholic, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And um, so um, they didn't teach the language to us uh, in a natural way at home like they probably could have or should have been doing back then. So they were kind of mm-hmm. protecting us in a way so that we wouldn't be punished the way that they were. So mm-hmm. they didn't speak to us. They spoke to us now and then, and we heard the language a lot uh, when we were kids, but um, it was mainly about um, their language. We kind of figured it was like their language. I got the rhythm of the language quite well from hearing those uh, visits and those talks between my parents. So as part of our immersion program, we have an outdoor education component, which is very important. So in Sanchathan, we say Elanganakta, um, which is our homelands and learning from the land. And so uh, in in the immersion program specifically, we um, have typically gone out at least once or twice a week um, to special places of significance where we learn about place names um, and plants that can be harvested there for different purposes. Um, animals that you can find there. Uh, for example, one place um, in our area is called Sneedquith, which is Todd Inlet, um, and that's the place of the blue grouse. So at one time, uh, the blue grouse once lived there um, before it was mined. Sneedquith, yeah, Sneedquith is uh, uh, one of our, uh, our village sites, but to the Oksanich people, it's the first village of our people, mm-hmm. of the first man. That was lowered down from the sky. He was a human spirit of rain. And he was put down by my creator to be in that place. And that's the name of that place. It means a place of blue grouse. Because there was bountiful amounts of blue grouse there at one time. Mm-hmm. You know, when the ladies used to go out in that village long ago gathering the, gathering the grouse. It's like... Uh, Going shopping, you could compare it to go shopping, and where you're going to pick your chicken off the shelf. Well, they'd pick their chicken off the branch. They were so tame, you could just hit them on the head with a stick and put them in your basket, and then, and they were just like our wild chickens, really, those yeah. days, long ago, our ancestors. And so, um, you know, it's a beautiful little inlet. If you, the best way to go to Snitquat is by canoe or row, row in there, mm-hmm. and it, and when you're going in, you can feel the the sides of the, both of the land closing in on you like that mm-hmm. and you can feel the sacredness of it and it, it, it's almost overwhelming to you as you're coming mm-hmm. in there. You know it's a sacred place <laughs> and um, it's a calm inlet where it uh, it's not affected by any winds mm-hmm. there. And so the first man who was lower down, his name was Slamoch, means rain. Mm-hmm. So water to our people, which comes from rain, 
mm-hmm. is the strength of our people. And our people always go to the water to strengthen themselves, to bathe themselves in the cold water and strengthen their uh, their minds over their body mm-hmm. to be a strong person and to to um, maybe heal themselves of something. They'll go to the cold water and strengthen themselves for that and uh, do a, it in a form of a prayer. And that's, bec- that's because of rain is our ancestor, the human spirit of rain. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why Snitkwatlis is no, an important place. We haven't let it go. We haven't sold it. Mm-hmm. Nobody's bought it off. Nobody leased it off. People are using it, but they didn't ask us if they could use it yet. It's still ours. It's it's being restored now, thankfully. Um, but uh, it's always been a place of significance for our people um, historically. So we visit that place often and share with the kids uh, why this place is important and what's important about it. And now because it's being restored and, and the ladies who work there have done a beautiful job, uh, thank you very much to all of them and their hard work. Um, but now our students are beginning to have a relationship to that place um, and they're able to go there and, you know, we harvest and, um, get rid of invasive plants as well. So um, there's a lot of restorative work that the students have participated in as well. Um, But there is a story about that place also. Um, It's a place known where the first man came to Husetnich and he was called Thamoch. And um, because Thamoch, he fell from the sky um, as a raindrop and now rain we call slamoch and so there's there's a song there's a dance there's a story there are plants there are animals like all of these pieces just totally enriching um on this one place name so it's a big meaning much different kind of a Definitely. more in-depth kind of a meaning to our people when you hear that yeah and i, I think uh the, the the people today should be understanding of that that mm-hmm. that we had place names here and all around mm-hmm. and i think those are are actually giving giving Canada a more in depth kind of a history if they understand that and accept accept some of those old stories as part of Canada's history. Because it's not simply a question of these things being done in the past, or it's it's actually being done all the time. It's represented all the time, every time, and we are so and we are actually active agents in creating that all the time. Where do you live? Where are you from? You know, what place are you from? You know, of all the stories that are being told now in uh, in Canada, so many of them Indigenous stories are at the forefront of Canadian literature for obvious reasons. I mean, like, hello. I hold my hands up and I have a lot of respect for those who have been kind of on the front lines um, with in terms of like reclamation of place names. And I'm in full support of those people. And I believe that is something that is necessary, especially um, when it comes to language learning. Uh, you, you can't have one without the other. Um, and we try to emphasize that to our students um, and hopefully as they get older, they they have built that relationship and and become activists themselves, really, to say, like, if it hasn't already happened in their lifetime, that they will kind of continue that fight to say, no, this is Sneedquith or this is Leolnoch and this is, these are the things that happened there and these are the people that belong there. And, you know, they'll be able to kind of recite all the different things that um, make that place important and so um, that's something that I'm working on and working towards Um, anyone that is on my team or um, 
in my community and learning language and teaching language, we're all kind of at that place where we're all learning, um, to, we're building and strengthening those relationships to those places. Um, and then little by little taking steps towards, yeah, reclaiming those spaces and, and making sure that, uh, that we are the people that are, um, we're, we are the keepers of those places. Well, I guess, um, my favorite part of learning is, um, the understanding that language gives us of our own worldview, mm-hmm. uh, how we see the world and uh, and how our people connect to everything in nature in the way that our, our view of the world is that uh, all living things are like a relative. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a relationship to all different parts of creation that was laid down by the Great Spirit and uh, I think that was one of my main goals back then is I wanted to learn the language good enough to be able to say prayers in our own language because mm-hmm. it bothered me that I didn't uh, know how to pray to the Creator in our own mother tongue. One thing that is often talked about in um, the world of Indigenous language revitalization and that I've spoken to um, a number of times is that uh, learning language uh, for myself, speaking for myself, is that it's uh, like a healing journey. So um, that you know, um, growing up in the community, um, growing up on reserve, you know, kind of poverty and seeing a lot of alcoholism and drug addiction in my own family and community and, you know, all of those pieces that kind of make life hard as a young person, um, both as a child and then a young adult um, and struggling with that kind of stuff. Really, it is survival. Um, When you get into learning the language, um, it becomes a healing journey and you, and I see it now that I've, I've been doing it for a while and I see, and I've seen, um, someone like, uh, my cousin who's just come into learning the language this year. Um, there's like kind of a yearning for it and, and maybe, you know, a lot of people experience that, that there's a hunger and a thirst for it and, and a need and a want for it. And that's definitely what I experienced. And I, you know, come across people all the time that that's their feeling and that's the experience. Um, so my cousin was one of those people. Um, and they've seen a few come into our group of language learners, um, where that's been the case. Um, but you can see from the time that they start kind of where, their mindset is and what their energy is and you know being in survival mode for different reasons and just life life things that are going on but as they learn the language and become more involved there's songs that are involved there's dances there's trips out on the land Um, you're working with medicines and plants and we are all around young children who have that really vibrant innocent pure energy um, and they're often, you know, come from survival also when you know kind of what family life's like for a lot of these kids. It's, you know, heartbreaking, but also they're resilient. So, you know, we're kind of all still in survival mode. But when you are there involved in language and you're learning or teaching and passing that on to others, it's it becomes more spiritual and definitely healing. Well, I think um, it's really important for ourselves as First Nations people to know and understand um, our languages and give life to it again in the modern world um, because um, the, um, the, our, our, world, our world view through language is uh, it's what really centers us as a people, as a nation of people mm-hmm. and the people with our own uh, um, way of looking at this world and I think that, that uh, that understanding is very, very important for the world today. Mm-hmm. We're living in a world that, that nearly runs everything to ex- 
near exploitation nowadays, and um, mm-hmm. and um, I have a worry about the things in nature because we we just seem to use it to nearly nearly nothing left, and um, I worry about the sea life or the forest or or the the plants out there that are our medicines, and and I uh, I think that we have to. Um, put people aware of our understanding of this, that we had a good way of living, mm-hmm. a good way of living with nature as a relative, and, and I think that's important to bring forward today for people to think back of the origins of these these uh, beautiful gifts that were given to our people. But in terms of survival and, and based on the research, um, there's research out there that says that um, if you are learning your language, you are less likely to take your own life. And so we see that there's a connection between your mental health, your physical health, that spiritual health, and, you know, being connected to your language and the culture and the land. So that's exciting that we'll, you know, see stronger, more confident, uh, young Huelnoch students, uh, people in our communities, um, yeah, in our lifetime. And, and beginning now, we're all getting a little bit stronger because of that relationship we have to our culture and the language and the land, and it's a beautiful thing. I think it's the intention of our people, too, to put as many of our place names back mm-hmm. in order in the places where they belong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they can st- the settlers, they can still call it what they want, but uh, for our people, it would be there mm-hmm. as the proper name, as we, our people, have always known it to be. And I think that we should be able to work together on those kind of things. That is, in a lot of ways... I think our concept of of reality and space and time, you know, in terms of the the creation stories uh, that you know are are foundational to our territory, they're not of the past, you know, and they're and and uh, in and of themselves they are present, you know, they are continually happening. They the archetypes and and personas that are represented in those characters. Uh, whether or not it's like a trickster character like Skin Coots, um, and, and sort of the all of the uh, hijinks that, that that character gets into all the time, um, and how that relates to us, this is something that that is continually being perpetuated forward. You know, and like we are, it's it's continuing. It doesn't. It's not something that was just in the past. And so the colonial idea, especially especially of time, is that this is of the past and it's and it's extinguished. The the illegal extinguishment of us as as indigenous peoples is through the state, but also the, the sort of political and moral and, you know, spiritual um, extinguishment, that all is also a, a means of doing that. Yeah, because, yeah, because, so what they call Mount Douglas, uh, they call Mount Douglas these days, and the, the colonizers called it Mount Douglas. Mm-hmm. And um, so Pacalps actually is, uh, uh, when, in our story of Pacalps, and uh, there was, there's three Pacalps places that were made, and um, the the first one is it means white rock, mm-hmm. uh, like white granite stone. Yeah. And uh, when Creator was over on the on the mainland side in Smokwich or Point Roberts, he cast a stone from the first. He cast three of these white stones from there, and the first one slipped out of his hand, and it just went a short ways, and it landed in what they call white rock today mm-hmm. over there in Samiyamo country, Samiyamo mm-hmm. people. And uh, it went into the mud flats here and sank in. And the next one he threw, and then it flew over to the um, the people over at um, Sunshine Coast. What is that the name of that place? Uh, um, I can't think of oh, it. Um, 
uh, Seashell. Seashell, yeah. Seashell people, they, they, that's where the next one landed. So they have a Bacalt there. Yeah. And the third one came over to here and landed in the, embedded in the mountain there at Bacalt's. Oh. And you'll find it if you walk up there, you'll see it sticking out of the ground. Yeah. And one of the trails, I was on it and I saw it myself. Wow. White granite stone. So um, within that area, our, our, our cultures are very, very close. Yeah. And our belief system is very, very close within those areas. Wow. And our language is very, very close. When Yehudnik and Naksmuksen were creating the, the rivers and the waters, I mean, that happened. You know, these are not creation stories. These are, these are the foundational truths of our worldview of who we are. And I challenge, you know, any settler to tell me that that's wrong of their and their idea of this place. It makes any sense at all, especially when they have no idea about our territory other than how to take, how to rip out mountains and, and ship the ore all across the world or to dam the rivers or to, or to destroy all the trees and slaughter all the animals. What kind of knowledge is that? I mean, that's a story that's uh, long overdue for a reboot or maybe not a reboot, but just a total rejection. I think that we should be able to work together with the, the new settlers. You know, 150 years they've been here. In yeah. our in our view, they've just got here. Yeah, they just arrived just recently. You know, yeah. just, just eat that shall day. Yeah, we'll eat them. They just arrived here recently. That's what I heard the elders say, mm-hmm. because our people have been here so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the futurism basically is, is about the land. You know, we need to continually center land and and the the landscapes um in our concept of time and future and everything else because you know we can't simply just be focused on ourselves and because really a lot of things that we're seeing um in academia in indigenous education and and language revitalization um is not new knowledge it's something that we're bringing back or we're reaffirming um in a western institution so it's a lot of really old knowledge um that has been known for a long time and has been um legitimate knowledge but is now being brought into this other space where um Indigenous scholars are now um, shedding light on it in a way that Western academics can understand it or appreciate it or respect it because it's now in this kind of realm. If we just tell you it's a place where grizzly bear spirit goes to heal itself in a dance, that should be enough. But people don't understand that. You know, people, because they believe in these these other truths that they see as being important, uh, of profit, of capitalism, of Christian ideology, which infuses you know, all aspect of Canadian life. It's basically just a, you know, Protestant work ethic society that's violent and, and, and going in the wrong direction. Um, you think that information would be enough to tell people, hey, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. You know, like if there's a corral and there are a number of horses and, and someone's saying, don't get on that one over there and you keep getting on it and you keep getting bucked off, well then, you know, don't expect to have any front teeth for much longer, right? So I always like to liken things to stories of horses because, you know, we're a horse people um, and the horses have been predominantly taken from our from our community. So they need to be brought back into our stories as well. But, yeah, I mean, that is just it just drives me crazy um, because, you know, people expect settler society expects to have everything sort of hand 
delivered and given. Oh, we want your children. We'll take them. We want the land. We'll take them. We want your, you know, your fashion. We'll take that too. We want your music. We want, you know, everything else. It's like, well, do you want our lessons about the land, which are fundamental to relating to this place? Nah, well, no, we're going to leave that one alone because, you know, I'm. we could subdivide it, you know, we could subdivide it. And so, you know, your birth certificate, your, your, uh, your um, passport, your uh, wherever your de- you know your degree, if you're if you're in a program, um, your mailing address, you know even your name, the pe- the na- people's names, all these things are a means of of forgetting, of constant forgetting that are created every single day, and it's painful because you can see it in people they they don't feel connected to this place, and when you are when you have that degree of displacement, when nothing is sacred, when every even yourself. You know, and this is like John Trudell, you know, uh, then anything's possible. Any degree of depredation is, is, is possible and desirable. We can rip a mountain in half and ship the coal all the way around the earth to further exacerbate climate change. And we're going to see it as a profitable and, and beneficial venture to, to occur. Or having like, you know, why not we can have four Starbucks on each corner of the street and we can have five ski resorts all within a half hour drive of one another because we need some more, uh, you know, um, alpine uh, real estate. So um, what I try to convey to everybody, anybody and everybody who is uh, Indigenous and uh, from their community, if they have an elder that they know or if they're wanting to learn the language to to do so um, and to do it um, unapologetically and uh, to never stop and to do it quickly because time is of the essence. Uh, we have very few first language speakers left. So what we do have left is a lot of recordings and, and second language speakers who have learned from our, our elders who were fluent. Um, so really we are fighting against the clock. Um, and if we know like uh, in the political world right now, we have people you know in BC who are fighting for rights to their land. And uh, we've just talked about language being attached to the land and to our culture and, and, those, and to hold those things sacred and um, to, to um, make sure that they are valid and acknowledged and respected um, as, as rights as, in, as Indigenous people of, of these lands here in BC and Canada. Um, so all of it is connected and it's all important, it's all valid, and I want everyone to be on board. <laughs> so we say in Sanchathan, Halisit the Squelta, which is, um, and he was the Squelta. So uh, bringing our language back to life and, and moving our language forward, always moving our language forward. Um, and the, the final the final uh, thought that I'll leave is, Awistlakthasanusa, which is don't let the fire go out. Um, so keep those embers burning, keep that fire lit, and let's keep moving forward and bringing our languages back. I'd like to introduce you to Open Space, one of the oldest artist-run centers in the world, situated on unceded Lekongan territory. Since its founding in 1972, Open Space has grown into a living cultural space where art works, music plays, media moves, and words insight. Open Space works with artists to create and present contemporary work across all arts disciplines. You can find them at 510 Fort Street in the heart of downtown Victoria or visit them online at openspace.ca. My name 
is Eli Hurdle. I'm a Nahiel British German artist, filmmaker, curator, um, born and raised on the Kongan territory here in Victoria. Um, my grandma's family, my, my Kokum is from Wabaska, Big Stone Cree in Northern Alberta. Um, but I remember talking on the phone to a friend of mine um, who's learning her language and, and also teaching it, teaching it in, uh, um, out in Wasanish territory. She um, completed a, a two-year program learning from fluent speakers, and then she helped start a language nest at Sayout. And we were talking on the phone, and I told her um, that I had just learned how to how to introduce myself, and she asked me to do it um, because she's a what we'd call like a language geek, someone who's just, just super interested in her own language and other people and how they're learning their languages. And so, um, when I when I said that to to her, we were both crying on the phone because it, uh, yeah, it's like I still get get emotional when I'm able to. Um, to do that either one-on-one -on -one or in a public setting um, because it is such a critical part of reclaiming uh, a part of my identity that the, the government and other systems tried to erase through the 60s scoop. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty common story among indigenous people and, and people from other cultures as well, where there were government uh, interventions and policies to try and, um, I guess, take away elements of, of culture and to have an uh, assimilation of this multiculturalism, whatever you want to call it in, in Canada. But I feel like for indigenous folks, it's uh, a common theme that, um, a lot of people want to learn their languages and there should be more opportunities and funding for, for mm -hmm. people to do that if that's what they want to do. This past spring and summer, so the, the summer of 2018 was the launch of the exhibition called Sacred at Victoria City Hall. I had the opportunity to be the assistant curator with um, head curator Rose Bahan of a permanent Indigenous art installation within Victoria City Hall. So one of the things that I was thinking about um, while we were gathering um, artists and commissioning artwork was how I could also contribute something as an artist, as a filmmaker. And so I reached out to my friend uh, Brianna Dick, who's Lekwungen and whose territory uh, Victoria sits on, um, and we came up with the idea to create a film about place names and the histories and stories and, um, also not historicizing, but to, um, highlight and talk about the contemporary responsibilities that the Lekwungen people, her family, um, and community have to this territory today and going into the future. That 
teaching that, um, you know, we're temporary, temporary stewards of this land and we're borrowing it from our next generations. And so that's what I, you know, I think is my honor that I give to it is the honor of my ancestors, elders who looked after it and passed on that knowledge to us. We can't live as different people. We gotta live as who we are. So we interviewed uh, uh, a few of Brianna's family members, um, Bradley, Butch, and Skip Dick. From my understanding as place to smoke herring people, um, Lakwangan, that was our original name for this area. And Songese and Isquimot became acquired names through contact and through negotiation. The meaning as it's been taught to me, is um, our word Lekwang, which means um, smoked herring. And then Lekwangan means place to smoke herring. And then Lekwangan often refers to the language of this land. An elder once said that you have to speak the language of the land. The language brings forward light and understanding around um, our lands and water resources in a different way that um, provides a cultural scope and perspective that isn't tangible using the English language, but tangible in a cultural perspective that reaches into our spirit and heart as individuals. And then also I had the opportunity to go to um, Chatham and Discovery Islands, which are called Tlachess with Songhees elder Joan Morris. I was born and raised on Chatham Island, Tlachess. For the first 10 years of my life, it was such a heaven on earth. Still home, still home to me. Always will be. Fusalilok said you're rich so long as you have the, the tamok, the land, because you look after Tamo, it'll look after you. Um, that's where she grew up in a village uh, in the uh, 40s and 50s. Um, and there were people living out there off of the coast of Oak Bay um, up until the 70s. So that's uh, some history that I wanted to know more about and not, not a lot of people um, in the city are aware of. And uh, then I also had... Uh, the opportunity to interview um, Songhee's land manager, and she's also known um, by a nickname, the Camas Queen, uh, Cheryl Bryce. Um, and she um, has extensive knowledge um, about the Kwetlal or Camas food systems and also, and also place names uh, within her family and within other Lekwungen families um, um, across their whole territory. So we um, did an interview at uh, Migan or Beacon Hill Park. Welcome to Migan. Its traditional name means roughly translated into a place to warm your belly. It's also one of the places that Kwetlal Camas was harvested and still is harvested. This is one of the locations that I will harvest and uh, manage these food systems by removing invasive plant species and reinstating indigenous plants. Traditionally, it was a, a very um, 
highly sought after food resource up and down the coast. The Lekwungen women were known as the people to go to to trade for camas. There was a particular woman that um, had that role and responsibility within certain families and they manage these food systems in all different kinds of locations in what's now known as Victoria. Um, so that's why I've referred to these as really a living artifact to our ancestors. They didn't manage it the way they did, it wouldn't be here. 95% of the Kwetlao food system is completely gone compared to what was here 200 years ago. So there's very little left, so it's very, very precious when you have the opportunity to harvest the Kwetlao and connect with the Kwetlao and, and the whole food system. Tamuka is so sacred, it's such a blessing from our Creator. And um, that I've, I was really, really proud and happy that we could that we could make that film and install it on a wall within City Hall so that these um, these stories, these place names, these histories could could be centered within a, a pretty colonial institution and something that is upholding um, you know settler colonialism on Vancouver Island on Lekwungen territory and kind of show I guess within that the other side and the the what is underneath these these roads and buildings and all of these um, st structures and systems that have been built in the past 200 years because mm -hmm. there's a rich rich history for thousands of years underneath all of that um, that that needs to be known language is attached to the teachings, the teachings are attached to the land. Everything about our Lekwungen lands is sacred in terms of understanding, in terms of relationship to land. And my hope is for our next generations is to be open, to be curious, and to embrace the, you know, the old teachings of our lands and the disciplines behind that. So people who walk these landscapes and be able to say, okay, yeah, I can see how this is important to the Lokwangan people today, and to even acknowledge that we live today. For one thing, it was one thing that uh, that multiple people said when we were um, when we were filming and doing interviews was how um, complete or whole they mm -hmm. felt when speaking the language mm. and also that also makes me think of something an interview i saw with one of the actors of the um film that was released this past year um filmed in haida Gwaii in the haida language fully in the haida language and one of the actors that participated in the making of that film edge of the knife um talked about how how whole he felt when he was learning and speaking the language and i think that's something that a lot of people can relate to and mm -hmm. for myself I completely relate to that's something that, that that really interests me as well is when our languages exist in in syllabic or Roman orthography um, or if it's spoken and not not translated so that everything is going back to this center of um, English or Eurocentric experience, mm -hmm. um, but trying to center in interesting ways 
um, our own languages and our own cultures and the worldviews that are inherent within those languages. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I would like to do within my own practice as a filmmaker, um, and I'd love to do this in other languages in collaboration with other people as well, is to create new films, fiction films, new stories, not necessarily traditional stories, um, written and acted and spoken completely in um, our indigenous languages and not necessarily translated or subtitled that that wouldn't like that would be nice um, for everyone to be able to experience it and see it but I'm also really interested in what that would feel like and look like um, for say someone who speaks English or French or Japanese or any other language primarily to sit and experience um, another language like that and to not have it be spoon fed um, Mm -hmm. for you to understand what exactly is happening. Um, I know that that experience for me is always really rich. Uh, I was at a film last year's Victoria film festival. uh, That was, um, it was a, it was a long documentary. It was 45 minutes an hour and it was um, completely in a Nuktatuk Inuit language Mm -hmm. untranslated. There were no subtitles. And so um, myself and a, f- and a friend walked out of that uh, just mesmerized. And it was really, really powerful and emotional. And a lot of other people were walking out complaining that they didn't know what was happening. And there were no mm-hmm. subtitles. Oh, they were pissed off. But um, I think that's the sign of a powerful piece of art when you get um, strong reactions either way or both ways. Let your language live. Um, the relatives, it's your, it's your birthright. We're born into that and we can't change it. Thank you to all of the language speakers who spoke with us for this episode. Troy Sebastian, Jacqueline Jim, John Elliott, and Eli Hurdle. The film you heard selections from in this piece is called Lekwungen, A Place to Smoke Herring. It was created by Brianna Dick and Eli Hurdle. This episode was produced by Kemi Craig, with help from Peter Underwood, Yakari Peerless, and Melanie Lum. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. This program would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada. If you like this episode, tune in to Full Circle next week and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Hey. Give me your ear. Let's uh, let's pull back the curtain for a minute and check out behind the scenes of CFPB's podcasts. Hello, my name is Baraka. My most significant contribution to the podcast series was my narration on episode six of All Access, which is about recording and the experience of DIY recording. I got into this as a favor for a friend of mine, Nicola, 
who was the producer on the All Access podcast. And I had a lot of fun narrating that episode. I came down to CFUV, closed myself in a room for about an hour and uh, had a script. I talked to myself, I laughed at myself. And uh, yeah, it turned out to be a podcast, which you can listen to on CFUV or wherever you get your podcasts. And CFUV is always looking for volunteers, people to help out. So if you enjoy the podcast and you like locking yourselves in rooms and talking to yourself, as many of us do, come down to CFUV and do it for a good cause. I'd like to introduce you to Open Space, one of the oldest artist-run centers in the world. Situated on unceded Lekwungen territory, since its founding in 1972, Open Space has grown into a living cultural space, where art works, music plays, media moves, and words in sight. Open Space works with artists to create and present contemporary work across all arts disciplines. You can find them at 510 Fort Street in the heart of downtown Victoria, or visit them online at openspace.ca. If you like this episode, you'll love the All Access episode about a paradigm shift in the local music scene to decenter whiteness and promote Indigenous artists, called The New Paradigm Shift.